0: This week, Anna and Nick talk to Wendy Bronfine, Curio Wellness co-founder, chief brand officer and director of public policy, and Rebecca Raphael, Curio's chief revenue officer. Wendy and Rebecca join us to discuss their journey to starting a family cannabis business, the current state of the cannabis industry in the Maryland market, and how Curio Wellness sets itself apart from competitors. In this episode, Wendy and Rebecca also share plans to expand Curio's footprint in Mississippi through the company's franchise program, as well as their unique insights into the potential re- or descheduling of Canvas and industry forecasts for the rest of the year. If you're interested in learning more about Wendy, Rebecca, and their work with Curio Wellness, visit the links in our show notes. Also be sure to follow Curio, Wendy and Rebecca on LinkedIn and other top social media platforms. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Wendy Bronfine and Rebecca Rayfield of Curio Wellness.
1: Wendy Bronfine and Rebecca Rayfield from Curio Wellness. Thanks so much for joining us. I know we were hoping to get this first conversation at the end of last year um, and some schedules on, on both of our parts, I think had us moving around, but we're really excited to have you guys here um, now in 2024. Um, to, to kick things off, can you uh, introduce our listeners to, to um, who you are and what brought you into the cannabis industry? And Wendy, I'll pass it over to you first to, to kick us off.
2: Hi, thanks for having us. Glad we finally found the time to do this. Um, So Curio Wellness started back in 2014 um, as a nights and weekends project. Um, It was myself, uh, my father, our COO, and um, a couple other people working with us. Ultimately, we were able to win a license when Maryland um, had an application round in 2015 and, and and awarded those licenses in 2016. And since then, we've been the market leader um, in Maryland, and we are about to launch in Missouri. So, in Maryland, we have a cultivation, um, a processing, and licenses and two dispensaries. Uh, it's a wholesale market, so we serve uh, 98% of the dispensaries in the state. And then in Missouri, we'll be entering as a cultivator and processor. And um, in the time since we launched, we actually created a franchise. Um, of our retail operation. So we're hopeful to bring franchises of our retail to Missouri. Our first franchise just opened last month in Mississippi.
3: Can you talk about how the franchise, and and I do want to dig into both of you and your um, interesting backgrounds and kind of how you got here, but the franchising thing is really interesting, especially in a state like Mississippi. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah. So Um, It was probably back in about 2018 that this idea started to come into fruition. So in the industry, there's constant talk about, um, you know, the balance of multi-state operators, independent owners, and diverse operators and owners. And there's always this kind of halo of the capital issue, right? And so we thought we had this very novel idea of kind of solving many problems with one solution. So as a cultivator and processor in Maryland, we were serving um, the majority of dispensaries in the state. We also were running our own dispensaries, So we knew what it took to run a dispensary and how to do that successfully. We also saw as a wholesaler that that wasn't an easy task for everyone to step in and, and launch that business and sustain it and compete and things like that. So, we felt like one way to create um, kind of a better pathway to success for prospective licensees was to offer the franchise. We'll give you the business model, you know, in a box, so to speak, right? We The operations, the branding, the marketing, um, the, the best practices, the clinical education, the customer service education, all these pieces of the business. Simultaneously, there's that capital issue. So we raised... A fund that has over $20 million in it, where if you are a woman, minority, or disabled veteran, the fund will give you 93% of the startup capital you need to open that franchise. And the, the profits from the store pay back the loan. You have to exit in as little as three years or as many as seven. So it's meant to be a Kickstarter. And then, sort of, the third piece of that puzzle was diversity was not only something that the industry was looking for in, in um, ownership opportunities, but investment opportunities. So upwards of 40% of that uh, multimillion dollar fund are diverse investors. So it was a a diverse outlet to invest an an investment fund that's diversity investing in diversity funds, solving the capital problem for new entrepreneurs and specifically diverse entrepreneurs, and then optimizing people's ability to succeed by franchising the retail model.
3: And so this, the model you're building, um, like a franchise just by definition um you know indicates that that this model can be repeated in other markets so um what kind of metrics are you looking for success in Mississippi that would make you like bring this model to other markets because they're all so siloed and so weird <laughs> that's the professional term um like how, so I'm just kind of trying to see like how that would work and when people could could maybe see um the, the franchise model in their state?
2: So with franchising, there's a couple different kind of uh, pathways for us. One is we do kind of eva- – we evaluate the state marketplaces, right, and know targets that we have for franchises that we think are best suited to the model. The other part is who's the franchisee, right? And in the case of Mississippi, while the the program there is more immature – um, and is a smaller medical program, the franchisee was a home run. And so the quality of her as an operator, um, kind of took over, you know, the newness of the market there. Whereas, you know, if you had somebody who say, say was, um, you know, in Massachusetts or anywhere along the East coast or Missouri, those markets are, are, are more developed, um, and their regulatory schemes are a little bit more refined given the amount of time that they've been active um, than Mississippi, you know, it's still the same, the same idea of evaluating that franchisee for their quality. But in this case, I think the person won out over the territory. Hmm.
1: Uh, Let's bring it back because I I think there's going to be other opportunities to to get back into this franchise conversation. But, Rebecca, I do want to bring it back to you and and have you introduce yourself as well. And then talk to us a little bit about um, the the, the core where you guys are at in Maryland, because I don't think we've had. um, And correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if we've actually had an operator from Maryland on. So it'd be great if you could also provide some just background on, you know, where the market's at, especially since you guys went adult use. Um, I think it was back on July 1st last year. Right.
4: That's correct. Um, so Rebecca Raphael, uh, Chief Revenue Officer for Curio Wellness. I joined Wendy and Michael, um, our COO, Brad Friedlander, um, back in June 2018. Um, I have a very typical background for cannabis. I sold fine art for a living before I did this. So, um, it was, you know, that it natural. It translates directly. That natural career trajectory. Um, But in all seriousness, it's um, the the concept is the same, whether you're selling art, whether you're selling cannabis, we are focused on customer satisfaction, whether that's delighting the dispensary customer in our wholesale business or the end consumer in our retail business. You have to keep people happy in order to build brand awareness, brand loyalty and product adoption. Um, So that is where my team on the wholesale side focuses and uh, a part of that is our product innovation, which is a total differentiator for Curio wellness in the cannabis space. We have a dedicated scientific advisory board made up of world-renowned pharmacologists, doctors, um, scientists who create new forms of medicine that use uh, minor and major cannabinoids as their active ingredients across traditional dosage forms, like tablets or kind of cannabis traditional dosage forms like edibles, pre-rolls, and vapes. Um, And so in terms of the Maryland landscape, there are uh, growers and processors. Like Wendy was saying, we have about 99, I think, operating dispensaries right now. Um, the makeup of Maryland compared to Missouri, for example, is that about 50% of our dispensaries are multi-state operators. So your brand name, like the Rises, the Cura Leafs, et cetera. Um, whereas in Missouri, there are 30% of the stores run by three major chains. And then about 13% of the market are independents, but you don't have any of those bigger national players there. so. As Curio enters the Missouri market, we'll actually be um, one of the earliest multi-state brands to take the, the knowledge and know-how of our home base market of Maryland and apply our best practices so that our new customers in Missouri can benefit from, frankly, the things that we did poorly in Maryland that we've improved upon, and then the things that we continue to do well to serve our customers best um in like you said maryland my adult use try first and so the i believe the december numbers were that we did about 96 million in retail sales um so a very robust market i think it could grow even more if we had some regulatory changes um and just awareness of the cannabis program was broader in the state uh as well as uh not having certain restrictions on product but Uh, Despite all of that, uh, we're very proud of the adoption and we're uh, very proud to be a part of the first wave of adult use cannabis in Maryland.
1: Uh, you, you said something interesting to me that I don't think we hear all the time when it comes to uh, executives joining us. It's, it's, it's admitting you made mistakes along the way. You yeah. know, um, a lot of times I think okay. people are like, yeah, you know, there's hiccups here, hiccups there. Like mistakes are, are things that you can actually learn from, though. And so I'd love to um, delve into that a little bit more. You know, what was it, um, you know, if, 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 if you're comfortable talking about it, like what was it where you guys thought, like looking back on it, it's like, oh, I really want to do this different. Or here's what we learned from that.
4: Um, so there's, there are a few different ones. I'll give you two. The first is on the sales side. I think one mistake that we made was we, we didn't develop a sales team early enough that were consultants that really understood the data behind how to run a dispensary. We highly educated on our products, what made them different, how to talk about them to a cannabis patient, this all being kind of back in the medical market time. Um, but we failed to understand all the different nuances that a dispensary in Northern Maryland would have versus Southern Maryland, a multi-state versus an independent. And so the hard lesson was not everybody's created equal. And the more that you can put yourself in the, the situation of your buyer, like inhabit their mind, the better and more successful you'll be at tailoring our product mix to the needs of their store. And then once you kind of get over that hurdle, we've been able to develop programs where I can help you understand the margins of selling certain products, how to buy and run promotions on a readily cadence, how to make sure we keep your best sellers in stock and then pepper in some new products to try and maybe spike your revenues or figure out if you can get a new buyer to the store by adding something new, but really position ourselves as partners in every dispensary's growth rather than just being a wholesale vendor. Um, and and really that came with it being a market driven by high demand and lower supply to as the medical market basically slowed down and more growers and processors came online, you had more supply and a leveling out of demand. So we basically had to just reinvent our proposition as a sales team and the value that we added as a wholesale partner. Um, the other example I would give is on our product innovation side, um, before we commercialize anything, we make sure that we do patient trials where we make sure that the efficacy and what we believe a product is going to do is actually what it does. So when we came out with our good night product, uh, when was that back in 2018, 2019? It all blends together. 2019, I think. Yeah the original idea was to come out with three products under the good night banner. So all of the products have CBN and THC to help you fall asleep. And we did a study with patients for um, between three to six months overall. And we learned that two of the formulas we thought we were going to bring to market actually didn't work. Like, Science would tell you that they should give you this result. One was going to help you fall asleep faster. The other was going to help you stay asleep longer, for example. And lo and behold, one pulse release tablet helped you fall asleep faster and stay asleep longer. So from a back of the house perspective, you had operations prepared to make two products. You have packaging designed to make two products. You've got forecasts for two products. But we ultimately said, listen, only one of these products has integrity. And that's the one that has the data that shows it's going to help you fall asleep faster and stay asleep longer. So we only came to market with one product, but having that discipline to do the trials and to make sure the efficacy of what your product is advertised is true. um, That's very hard. And that's part of our ethos. And, you know, we're really proud of it, but it's, it's definitely been a learning experience to add more time to your product development cycle because you're going to get it wrong.
3: (laughs) Well, it seems to be, and I mean, no one would know this more than you guys, but that the sophistication of the market and the sophistication of the buyer, um, is really, or patient, um, is really, um, so much further ahead than, than regulations where like, you know, any other normal consumer packaged good would be afforded these, you know, um, focus groups and testing and all of this stuff. And, you know, for you guys to do it and for it to be something that is truly unique um, and, and a a differentiator, um, you know, just for the fact that you're in cannabis and the margins are so small and, you know, you don't have, like a lot of companies don't have that, that luxury to do that they don't have the um the infrastructure uh you know to to do this kind of like on or to understand the nuances between a market in the north and a market in the south or the market in the midwest so um i feel like the industry in general like has to make good with you know what little resources they have in order to like get the work done because it's consumers are becoming more discerning and they're getting older. And, you know, the 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 CBN, by the way, is my new favorite jam, <laughs> you know, like, I can't even say new, I've been using it for two years. So, you know, I feel like that um, that is unique and, and it feels like that will only serve to help you guys later. There was no question there, but it was just like kind of an observation um, there. I-
4: I think, and it's Rebecca again, when Wendy and Michael founded the company, Michael's background was in institutional pharmacies, pharmaceutical drug distribution. So really familiar with regulated industry, um, but frankly, very concerned with providing safe, effective, and reliable products into the market. And you can't do that if you don't use science and you don't run patient trials and You don't have CGMP certification where there's this extra level of safety and hygiene and protocol attached to the products you make. And in cannabis, it's seen as like, oh, my gosh, you're doing all these things. Meanwhile, we're following the standards that like Johnson and Johnson follows or Procter and Gamble. Like if it appears on your grocery store and it's shelf and it's monitored by the FDA, that's the level of um, what's the word I'm looking for, like safety regimen trust that we want people to associate with curio product. So that, that whole being that whole process, it's just in our DNA. It's how we started and it's how we'll continue to be. But I agree with you that it's, it's seen as an outlier in this. Um, and, And yes, if we did have different Regulatory, if different regulatory environment, if lawmakers viewed cannabis differently, it certainly would be easier to take these steps. We have to jump through a lot of hoops to do client patient trials uh, and get CGMP certified, et cetera.
1: Um, Wendy, I want to shift back to you real quick because a, a unique part of what how Curio was founded—you are know, saying it was a, um, a weekend project, but it was a family weekend project, right? Um, we don't talk to a lot of companies that start like that, which, um, I think I've talked about this a couple of times when Arizona, uh, first went, uh, medical back in 2010, my dad and I were trying to start like a family, um, you know, cannabis business there. We, we got close, but we couldn't quite get it over the hurdles that we needed to. So, uh, you know, I'd love to hear more about, you know, what it's like to, Start something like this with your family. Was cannabis already like an open topic um, amongst y'all or, or not? Because when we first started this podcast, like Ann was saying earlier, six years ago, that was one of the questions we would always ask people. It's like, how did you first tell your family that like, oh, I'm working at this cannabis business or, you know, doing something like that. It's such a, you know, it was taboo still back at that time. But you guys turned it into this, um, you know, thriving business.
2: Yes. So this is Wendy. Um, in May of 2014, we actually took uh, Memorial Day weekend. We we joined friends of ours, like family friends of ours on a trip to Colorado, which was not long after adult use had started. And prior to that, there had been um, like the chatter had already started in Maryland about a potential medical program coming along. Um, so it was Rebecca and I, Uh, Rebecca is my sister, in case that wasn't clear. Um, It was Rebecca and I and um, our parents and these family friends who went on the trip. And that's like kind of that was, I would say, the the catalyst for like, okay, we saw this in action. Now we're going to start kind of like doing a little bit more due diligence. I went back to Colorado the next month for the N.C.I.A. conference and came back and sat around the kitchen table with the whole group and reported back on what I learned. And from there was pretty organic in terms of we asked questions, we went to different resources um, and nothing, there was never a definitive point of like, are we doing this or not? It just sort of kept moving forward on its own. Um, So it did start as uh, Michael and myself, our COO, who is like family, um, was here from the beginning as well. And then um, my sister joined us about a year and a half in, and our brother joined us two years ago now, I think it is. Um, so uh, my mom- so It's not- the whole family. Yeah.
3: yeah. Not my mom. Our mom,
2: mom did, what did your What did your mom do? She babysits.
3: <laughs> Honestly, a really important part though of, yes. of a theme here. She's, like
4: you CEO of child care. Yeah. Chief child care officer.
3: That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I hope I hope she gets some some good family discounts for she must be exhausted at the end of the day.
4: <laughs> well, we develop, I like to say we, we developed yeah. good night for her. So, good night was the first thing to come to market and it, that was like the bargaining chip of if you guys are going to do this, I need you to create something for my insomnia. So, I mean, follow through. That's amazing.
3: And um I guess on the family like you know, where where do you guys want to be in 5 years? You know, there are so many or maybe even just do 2 years cuz cannabis is a weird like <laughs> Time the time We're is in the weird in cannabis. Yeah. Um we, we and, would, you know, what, what's the what's the ultimate for you guys? So we would like
2: it uh crystal ball two years from now. Um we are no longer a schedule one substance. And from a federal perspective, we have resolved banking, 280E, and the opening of capital markets, and we've gone public on an
3: American stock
2: exchange. How
3: do you I mean, everybody's kind of speculating about the DEA um, and uh, the decision they're going to make. And there's, you know, leaks abound. Um, You guys are right next to D.C. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. What what are you hearing?
2: So um, I
3: think so.
2: I guess it's start with where people may or may not be familiar with this. So um, the FDA gave a recommendation for cannabis to move from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3. It now sits in the hands of the DEA to provide their response. Um, that doesn't have necessarily a definitive time period. Like it's not imminent. It could be months from now when they respond. Um, there also is the nuance of it. There are, um, a federal agency and it is a, uh, it'll become an election year and then a lame duck. And that's not a time when agencies really like to invoke change. Um, but all that said, if their, if their decision aligns, um, and it would be moved from schedule one to schedule three, I think the biggest, so, so the win is at schedule three, we don't have a 280E problem. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is a meaningful win for operators. I think there is, but it is not the win that we need. So there needs to be a lot of focus on what is next, right? And it all goes back to that normalizing of our industry and us having banking and us um, having capital markets opened. And 280E is just one leg of that three-legged financial stool that we have to fix. Um, And I think that it's a little bit... um, Naive to assume that it's as simple as schedule three fixes everything. Yeah. Um, technically, as a schedule three drug, we would have to be in a pharmacy. Um, so we need to ensure that the federal government is going to allow our state based programs to exist as they are and don't reclassify us to follow the rules of a schedule three substance under FDA. And if they do that, we then have to hope that major industries like pharma, tobacco and alcohol do not sue because we get to operate in some loophole that, you know, others do not. So it's a it's a kind of my my analogy lately has been like you know sometimes you have something wrong with you and the doctor prescribes something and it helps your symptoms but then you got new symptoms from the med you're taking so that's what the schedule 3 change sort of feels like we're, we're we might fix one problem but i don't know that we're totally better um so i think it's really going to be incumbent upon the industry to align on on the most important measures we need to be fixed on the federal level and get congress to move along on this because we need uh, congressional change to to get to where we want to be.
3: Yeah, and I think you know certainly a lot of our clients um, are obviously in favor of a of a reschedule, but descheduling is really the answer to yes. a, a thriving commercial marketplace here, right?
2: Yes. And that is, we, we have been long, for. we wrote a white paper about descheduling back in, uh, 2016. So our favored position is to deschedule cannabis for it to be regulated under the food drug and cosmetic act like dietary supplements are right. So that the safety of its, um, production and distribution are regulated, but we exist in our, in our state, um, based programs, um, you know, interstate commerce comes along. That's wonderful, but it really just means that if the pharma companies ultimately want to do investigational drug um, work, then they can do that. But we are never seen as more than something under the uh, Drug and Cosmetic Act and, and like a dietary supplement.
1: Yes. So the complicated nature of, of all of the, the cannabis regulatory hurdles does not stop you guys from having to, to continue to run your business, continue to try and expand and, and, and be successful. And, you know, we've touched on Mississippi. We've touched on Maryland. I want to explore Missouri a little bit more um, and talk about, you know, w- what brought you into that state. And, and that part of that's a, a relationship that you guys have with Viola. So um, if you could uh, bring our listeners up to speed on, on everything that you guys are doing there.
4: Um, Absolutely. So what attracted us to Missouri, as well as other states in uh, the U.S. that we look at is it had a very strong medical program and it was on track to become an adult use program. For Curio, the value in that is that the condition specific products we make are targeted to people dealing with insomnia, with anxiety and stress, people with gastrointestinal issues. Um, and so the more the larger the population that can benefit from those the more it makes sense for us to try and bring those products to an area so missouri is the gold standard for cannabis like they did 123 million in december in retail sales Mm -hmm. they have no restrictions on products or potency so anyone can walk into a dispensary and buy any product the amount of tax that they pay will differ if you have a medical card it will be lower if you have an if you do not it will be higher um and they also are you're allowed to advertise like the the program and the ability to buy cannabis is effectively celebrated in missouri and we don't enjoy that same liberty in maryland so as a marketer it's really exciting to be able to go there and to be able to speak openly to all different types of audiences about Who the brand is, why safe, effective and reliable medicine um, in the form of cannabis is something that you should add to your lifestyle to feel better every day. You don't have to feel high when you use cannabis. Um, Our good day products, for example, we refer to them as functional cannabis because they have really low doses of THC and higher doses of THCV or CBG or CBD. Because they're about feeling better, but still being able to live your life and not having like the traditional couch lock that you associate with, you know, getting high. Um, So in Missouri, we are really proud to also be a part of the trade association. I think it's worth mentioning that they have not only is their program a gold standard, but how their growers and they refer to their processors as MIPS. Um, and the retailers, how everyone in the industry works together is really admirable. They're all fighting effectively for the same cause. They want access to their products. We, they wanna make sure that the health and safety standards are regulated appropriately. Um, but they, the whole state really works as a team. And so I'm super jazzed about being there. We've gone to uh, events over the past years. We start to roll out the products and introduce the brands. And the people are fabulous. The dispensary agents are fabulous. The owners of the companies are welcoming and and give you advice and say like, this is a hurdle that we had to jump. Here's how you can avoid it. So it's been a a really warm reception and we anticipate that we'll start shipping our uh, award-winning chews in probably four weeks. Um, And we already have about a hundred dispensaries of the 200 that are operating that have committed to stocking the product. So, I think it's going to be a really strong start and I'm just you know ready to roll.
3: We were just talking um we have a, a client that's in um craft distilling. So um and we were talking about the um the trends in dry January and a lot of younger consumers um are way more interested in um health benefits than like <laughs> I'm in my mid forties and like my generation was like, you know, we, we joke that like, I can't believe drinking water is a big thing. Like, I don't think I had water, you know, (laughs) throughout my late teen, early 20 years, right? So there, it just seems to be a much more, and now I'm making up for it, um, but it seems to be a much more um, sophisticated audience that, that you know, is turning to, I mean, there's just a story in Bloomberg today, um, you know, uh, cannabis sales are up um, you know, as, as people are still in dry January, and there's just like, seems to be a trend towards um, net less drinking. Um, and mocktails. And and I'm just wondering if if you guys are seeing that in the the folks who are walking through your doors.
4: We haven't specifically asked people, are you giving up alcohol and consuming cannabis in, in its place? For me personally and in like my circle of friends, that 100% is happening. I especially see it with moms because mm-hmm. or parents, because you don't wanna be hung over on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning. So- doctor um, starts at seven. Right? So there's, you know, I take a five milligram terpene chew on a Saturday night. I no longer drink alcohol. Fewer calories is a benefit, but Sunday morning I've slept great and I feel brand new in the morning. Um, the Good Day products, which I mentioned, we joke are uh, really low THC. They're designed for the soccer mom, or there's a, a Dixie tablet that I always refer to as the nobody pisses me off pill because it's five milligrams of THC and five milligrams of CBD, and it's like the antidote to an in-law. So I totally agree that there are, there is a trend both in microdosing, so 2.5, five milligrams of THC, But also in just lower levels of THC, high levels of uh, minor cannabinoids that have auxiliary benefits, health benefits, just to help you feel good and get through the day um, that aren't addictive. And uh, frankly, you continue to feel great after you've taken them, unlike the way you feel with alcohol.
3: Well, I just want it noted that my mother-in-law is a dedicated listener and I have no such use for those products, Jill. (laughs)
4: I love my mother in law, but she she knows that I have a little bit of something in my system to just kill everything.
1: I was going to say, you, you're really selling these products, Rebecca. I, I'm wondering, are you, when you guys come to Arizona, I need to get some for my mom. Because, you know, uh-huh. she's, she's crazy about the CBN. She's crazy about all, all those um, the different edibles and stuff. So, you know, when, what's next on expansion for you guys? Are you, you, know, are you, are you looking west? Are you going to bring it to New York where you're at, Rebecca?
4: We don't have plans right now to come to New York. Um, so I have to keep traveling to other markets to see our beautiful facilities and our wonderful staff. Um, But we are still looking to expand our growing and manufacturing operations to other states, mainly east of the Mississippi. Um, But this year, I am starting to speak to brands about how we might license our condition-specific products so that we don't have to make the capital investment in standing up a license, buying that license. um, But as a way to increase our national footprint specifically for the good day, good night uh, GI by Curio and Move by Curio products.
3: One question that we ask almost all of our guests is um, you know, we're PR folks and we're talking to media all the time. Um, what's the one most undertold story? in this business? And I'm sure you'll both have separate answers, but Wendy, I'll start with you. What, if you were to open um, the Baltimore Sun tomorrow um, or the Washington Post um, and, and- I gotta and- give a
1: shout out to the Baltimore banner too. Oh,
3: Baltimore banner, yay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's the one story that you would just like make your day? Oh God. That is a hard one. One story. One I mean, story. No, it can be a couple stories. That's fine. But but I, I feel like we're. Well, we're I, I think and... that. Go ahead. Sorry.
2: No, no. I was gonna say I think that um, this industry is always the the focus is, and I, I say this obviously, I'm, as a co-founder, I know it's a bit ironic, but I think it's always focused on who who has won a licensee, who is operating a license, but. Like there is massive job creation that's happening here. We started in, we were awarded a license in August of 2016. We sit here today, 350 deep and hiring, right? That, and that's in Maryland. That's not accounting for the 150 people we plan to hire in the first year in Missouri and other reasons we think our business is going to grow. And that's as an employer who has paid a living wage since day one. Our entry level wage is $17 an hour. Most people, I think, sit closer to 20. It's a full benefits package. It's a matching 401k and PTO and short-term disability and parental leave and all everything you could want that if you were looking for work in more traditional industries in our in our country, those was, is what uh, your packages could look like. Um, but on top of that, when you're an organization like ours, where you, where you have the three types of licenses, it's a multidisciplinary space, right? So we have people who work in agriculture, people who mm. work in um, GMP manufacturing, people who work in retail, people who do all types of corporate support and logistics and security and maintenance and procurement. And so it's like there, there's such a wealth of opportunity. And because we're so new and because we're always moving so fast as an industry, the opportunity to grow and develop a career is pretty amazing. I mean, it's probably the closest thing to it would be like .com in like the 90s, right? Because we came out of nowhere and it's all just happening quickly. But I don't think, I think people do not pay attention enough to um, the economic opportunity that's coming out of these businesses. And so when you constrain us, on how we safely and appropriately deliver our products to patients and consumers, you constrain that economic opportunity for the jobs that are created and how that impacts the communities around where you're based.
3: I love that. Rebecca, what would you say? I
4: don't want to follow that answer. (laughs) We can just say it's your idea too. Um, (laughs) No, it's, it kind of dovetails into Wendy's but when you watch the like documentaries on Netflix or or any news station about the cannabis business i feel like everything is always portrayed very sensationally you see these like unbelievable indoor grow rooms and the plants are sexy and like oh my god we've brought it out from the underground um or there's just conversations around the you know, challenges of um, how how communities accept cannabis into their space. There's not really an honest reporting on how hard it is to run this business because it's in a really tight regulatory environment and every single state is different. So Mm -hmm. Missouri's laws are totally different than Maryland's. We try and stand up the exact same operation but we have to tweak to match the, the regulatory state that we're in. Um, and it's, it's really a, a seven hour, seven days a week, you know, sometimes 20 hours a day, 365 day of week job because we're making medically medical grade quality products for people to take on the daily as part of their daily regimen. And if we don't get them out onto the shelves, you're gonna have a lapse in your relief, especially for the gastrointestinal products, for example. Like if you're taking our GI comfort and it has completely abated your Crohn's symptoms, if we stock out of GI comfort, you will totally go off a cliff in terms of your relief and that's our fault. So we take that responsibility really seriously and it is incredible to have been awarded a license and we understand the privilege that's attached to that but it's an incredibly hard job to make sure that we keep products on shelves, that we stay compliant. Um, And it always seems to me like the sensationalism of cannabis makes everybody want to join it. And it seems like, oh my God, there's there's this green rush. Like there's this huge Mm -hmm. opportunity, I'm gonna get rich. But really you, you have to have an appetite for challenge. You need to have an insatiable work ethic you need to have a really strong team of people who are smart at the air in the areas that they're responsible for. Um, and you need to have a staff like we're fortunate to have down to you know our line level packagers who are dedicated to keeping products on the shelves because at the end of the day, we're all just consumer product good businesses. Right. Well, cannabis is our is our active ingredient. It's what creates the widget. But we're in the business of keeping products on shelves. Um, And that's a it's a really big challenge. And in a post-COVID world, it's frankly, it's only gotten harder. Right.
3: Well, that brings up another and I know that was supposed to be our last question, but I lied. Um, But uh, it brings up the other question of, um, you know, again, when we started six years ago, like the cannabis like industry was like, oh, gee whiz. Or like it was uh, if you were in um, biotech or a scientist or you are in procurement or you're in supply chain, like if you went to the cannabis world, like you were considered like, oh, my God, like an outsider. Have you like I can't believe you did that. What does your family think? What do the people you know you went to high school with or college with think? And like they
4: were really cool.
3: Right. No, they do. But they're also they weren't necessarily the risk takers. But there does seem to be, you know, um, in spite of all of the challenges, a really thriving market that has been has been built here. Are you finding recruitment easier?
4: No, Hmm. no. You think you you think you would be able to find more people. I think there's there's two forms of there's two levels of recruitment for individuals who want to come and help Grow plants, package like your hourly staff. Mm-hmm. It is easier to find groups of people who want to come. Like they tend to be excited by the prospect of working in cannabis. The challenge is that we still have to put out large volumes and the demand um, that we're trying to serve requires people to come to work on time, be reliable. Like, you know, and that's just a post COVID. Problem in general. That's not specific to cannabis, that we struggle with finding those committed individuals. On the specialty side, um, I would share that with our product development, for example, we need chemists, we need uh, food scientists, people who are experts at chocolates versus edibles. And those really technical jobs, which traditionally come from food science or like the McCormick of the world they tend to be harder to recruit for cuz people are still really skeptical of coming into cannabis when they've been with these major you know national brands
1: that i think that's just a uh a really interesting thing because I don't think that's something that everybody thinks about when it comes to to that recruitment is going to be that challenge so um, we'll make sure to have a link in our show notes to the careers tab for for <laughs> curio <laughs> wellness so that yeah, anybody that's you, hire yeah, you. <laughs> <laughs> we, will, we will include that but um, Wendy Rebecca this has been fantastic thanks so much for uh, for joining us today uh, you know we, we wish you guys all the success as uh, you, you grow in uh, Missouri and and, uh, and continue to grow in Maryland but uh, you know this would be great to, to check in as the markets continue to make mature. And as you guys grow, um, to have you back on again soon. Thank
2: Absolutely. you. Thank
1: you. Another huge thanks to Wendy Bronfine and Rebecca Rayfield of Curio Wellness for joining us today. Um, you can follow all that they're doing at curiowellness.com. That's Curio spelled C U R I O. As always, thanks for listening to The Green Rush. If you want to chat with Anne or I, you can find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. You can drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We want to hear about all the stories and guests that you guys want us to cover this year. And as always, don't forget to subscribe to The Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher as well as our newsletter at greenrushpodcast.com. One take, Shay. One take.